We're continuing on this morning in our series on work, taking a break from our exposition of Matthew's Gospel for something I think that is uh, both helpful and necessary, particularly as we're into the beginning here of a new year. So we have been talking about a biblical theology of work. This is the third of eight planned messages with regard to this topic. And uh, last week uh, we spoke about work and we spoke about what a glorious thing work is. We talked about how a legitimate job, well done, is both glorifying to God and satisfying to our soul. We said that uh, work is one of the ways in which we display what it means to be created in the image of God. We also noted that to deny someone the opportunity to work is in some sense to deny them part of what it means to be human. So work is a very, very significant thing. And and some of you were encouraged by last week's message. I've heard from you throughout this week that it really sort of encouraged you, gave you a fresh outlook and perspective on work. You kind of went out. Some of you really pumped up. And uh, that was really good. And then Monday morning came. And then Monday morning came, and, uh, and you had a collision. You had your Monday morning collision, right? And you, uh, you went at it Monday morning again, and you realized that work is hard, that work is frequently frustrating, that uh, work often is just seems like a long way away from the great and glorious themes that we spoke about on just the day before. So what happened? How did something that that looks so good get kind of twisted on Monday morning? What happened to work? Well, the answer, simply put, is the fall. The fall. The fall of man has had a significant impact upon the topic of work. And that's what I want to do this morning, is I want to look with you briefly together at the fall and its consequences, the consequences of the fall. It's it's something in our remote past, to be sure, but its consequences continue on to this day. So I want to look with you at the fall of Adam and its consequences so that we can understand what happened to the glorious gift of work and begin to understand what to do about it now that it's broken. We still have it. It is still a glorious gift. It's just a little dented, a little deformed, a little bruised. It's it's kind of like going to the bump and dent store and, and buying a piece of furniture. And you bring it home and it's serviceable enough, but it just doesn't look pristine. And our work has been to the bump and dent store of Adam's fall. So open your Bibles up to Genesis 3, because that's where we're going to have to begin to take a look at this whole topic. God created a a perfect world, and He created a world of, of beauty and harmony, a world over which He had set Adam and Eve as king and queen to rule under Him. That's the message of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But it didn't take long for there to be a problem in paradise, did it? 
you arrive at really the, the end of chapter 2 and verse 25, and it says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And if this was a, a dramatization of the text, you would begin to hear the music change. There would be kind of an ominous music that would begin to build in the background. Because what is once thought unthinkable very rapidly becomes a reality. Adam and Eve, having it so well, turn their backs on God. Turn their backs on God and, and plunge themselves and the creation into ruin. Beginning in verse 1 now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Cue the ominous music. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Their eyes were opened, the text says. And what they saw with their eyes open was their own shame. Or their, their own shame. Their nakedness. They came to see that, that although they had denied the truth of God's word, it stands fast. They died. They died in that moment. And when they died, beloved, in a great sense, we died with them. We died with them. The king of creation fell from his throne. And a thick cloud of disease and death and darkness, despair, descended upon the creation. And it remains over us even to today. I don't have time to begin to exposit this entire chapter of Genesis. So I need to to move along here and to take you to the consequences of this fall. In particular to Adam as it's revealed here in verse 17. So I'll take you ahead to verse 17. Then God said to Adam... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. God pins the blame, the ultimate blame for the, for the fall of humanity directly where it belongs. At the feet of Adam. It is Adam's sin that caused the race 
to plunge into ruin. And we today, as the descendants of Adam, to feel the effect of that ruin. And in particular, our focus this morning upon our work. The reason given here in the text for the, for the penalty is simply enough that, that Adam listened to his wife rather than God. He listened to his wife rather than God, and he willfully rebelled against his Creator. He willfully rebelled. Notice how God repeats the original prohibition here in verse 17. You shall not eat from it. Adam, this is... This is the, the outward manifestation of your sin. I told you you could have whatever is in the garden, all of the goodness I'd laid out before you. There is this one thing you cannot do, you must not do, and the day you do it, you will die. And Adam, that's the very thing you did. It's the very thing you did. And in your rebellion, you have ruined yourself. You have chosen to ignore the Creator and to eat of that which was prohibited to you. It's interesting, I think, that in response to the man's trespass here of eating, God causes the pain of the consequence to be connected to eating. You see it here in in verses 17 and following. Actually, five times in verses 17 to 19, we see a repeated use of the word eating. Eating. What you did, Adam, is you ate, and the consequence of that will be connected from henceforth to eating. To eating. Verse 18, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Basically what God says is, Adam, because your your rule at home was weak, now your rule over the creation will be affected by it. The earth will become, in effect, insubordinate to you as you have become insubordinate to me. Instead of the earth yielding itself to you easily, it will now fight you every step of the way. Cursed is the ground, Adam, because of you. It shall bring forth thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The picture here is Adam. Every time you sit down to eat, there will be sweat dripping from the end of your nose. It will continue to to accumulate on your face and, and to drip from your nose. You will never be free, Adam. Never be free of the fatigue and the toil that will now be associated with this most fundamental aspect of your being. It's interesting that years later, one of the descendants of Adam, Lamech, names his son Noah. He names his son Noah. What's interesting about that is the word Noah means rest. It means rest. And and he named him that in hope that perhaps that one would bring An easing of the consequences of sin. Of course, we know it never did, did it? Freedom and release from the consequences of Adam's fall come only with death. You were taken from the ground, Adam, verse 19. You are dust, and to dust you will return. 
You will wrestle with the earth for all of your days. Your deliverance, your relief with the soil, from the soil, will come only as you return to the soil. It's a frightful consequence that came upon this man for his rebellion and by consequence of our descent from him upon you and I. We bear the same consequence. We will toil, we will wrestle until the day we die. There will be no deliverance. Beloved, I I find, as dismal as this seems, I find hope in this. And that it lifts my eyes to heaven. I look forward to the day of relief when Messiah will come and will overturn the consequences of Adam's sin. But in the meantime, I've got no illusions. No illusions at all. Work as a glorious thing. A fulfillment of what it means to be made in the image of God. But it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. And there is no relief from it. The fall of man. What are the effects of this fall upon you and I? You and I today, right? I mean... Very few of us are working the ground, as it were, to receive our sustenance. We're moderns. We don't engage in farming, but we engage in work. And the thorns and the thistles here speak of the difficulty of the task of work. And so we have our modern-day thorns and thistles. One writer is speaking of this. He says, work now exists in a world sustained by God but disordered by sin. We work today in a world sustained by God but disordered by sin. There are thorns and thistles in all of our lives as we engage in the noble task of work. So what are they? What do these thorns and thistles look like? I thought it would be worthwhile reviewing a few of them for you so that you can see that you're not alone. Whatever your circumstances, however the thorns and thistles are coming to you, I want you to, I want you to understand that it is common to man. You're not alone in this. So here they are, at least a representative sample. The problems with work. Number one, I'm calling it the unreasonable boss. The unreasonable boss. Now, most of us have had an experience in our life at some point with the unreasonable boss. This is the person who thinks leadership and and good management skill consists of criticizing, yelling, berating, threatening, undermining, playing favorites, Insisting on their own opinions contrary to the facts. Blame-shifting. Brown-nosing. And assorted other antisocial and sinful behaviors, right? You can identify with this, I think. The thorns and thistles of the unreasonable boss. 1969, a Canadian researcher by the name of Dr. Peter Lawrence... He wrote a book entitled The Peter Principle. The Peter Principle. And the principle, the Peter Principle says in in effect that that people are always promoted one step beyond their competency. One step beyond their competency. 
And that's based upon the, the belief that good performance in one job guarantees good performance in another. And so you find somebody who's a good worker, and the first thing you do is you promote him into management. And you find out that, whoa, are they over their heads, right? It's been my experience that, uh, that the Peter principle shows up often among the supervisors and the middle managers, those that have been promoted beyond their competence. They don't know how to lead. They don't know how to manage. So they resort to all kinds of ungodly behaviors in an attempt to coerce their employees to produce the unreasonable boss. Here's another thorn and thistle for you. The unfulfilling job. The unfulfilling job. Now this situation here can recur for a, for a number of reasons and it can make work a process of slow death. This is, this, is, this is a slow and painful death, the unfulfilling job. Now, this may come because we find our work to be mind-numbingly boring, right? Maybe because it's repetitive, or maybe because it, it fails to utilize our, our intellect and our creativity in the fashion in which God has given it to us. It may be the result of of basing our career and employment decisions on financial remuneration rather than how God has put us together, how he's wired us, how he's gifted us, our aptitudes, our interests, our calling. We hear often people talk about, you know, I need to provide for my family. I hate my job, but I need to provide for my family. So I'm dying on the installment plan. You know, uh, provide for your family, I think, is a rather flexible term. A rather flexible term and, and maybe, maybe ought to be analyzed a little more closely. Provide for your family. There are people in this world providing for their family on a few dollars a week. Here in America, provide for my family typically means maintain a lifestyle characterized by excessive materialism. I've got to provide for my family. There's a certain size house and television and car and on and on in order to provide for my family. Maybe a covering for greed and materialism we ought to be aware of. Pastor Tim Keller speaks on this topic. He has some insightful things to say with regard to the issue of the unfulfilling job. And I have a little bit of it for you here. He writes, we believe that lower status or lower paying work is an assault on our dignity. One result of this belief is that many people take jobs that they are not suited for at all, choosing to aim for careers that do not fit their gifts but promise higher wages and prestige. Western societies are increasingly, he says, divided between the highly remunerated knowledge classes and the more poorly remunerated service sector. And most of us accept and perpetuate the value judgments that attach to each of these categories. I think he's on to something here. He says another result is that many people will choose to be unemployed rather than do work that they feel is beneath them. And most service and manual labor falls into this category. Are you kidding me? I can't do that job. 
He goes on, he says, often people who have made it into the knowledge classes show great disdain for the concierge, the handyman, the dry cleaner, the cook, the gardener, and others who hold service jobs. Wow. What an indictment. And I think he's on to something. I'll add my personal opinion here. It's my opinion that we, we push people to call off to college who would be better off not going. That we have made it now to be the pathway to prosperity and success. And so there are many, many people involved in the college system who would do better elsewhere. I'll pick that up a little bit in a couple of weeks when we speak about the topic of vocation. Vocation. So there's the unfulfilling job, which can be the thorns and the thistles in your life. The unreasonable boss, the unfulfilling job. Here's another one for you, the unjust wage. The unjust wage. The situation of the unjust wage arises when too much power is concentrated in the hands of the employers. Too much power in the hand of the employer. This can come about through monopolies. It can come about through extended periods of high unemployment. It can come about through discrimination. It can come about through government corruption. It can come about through collusion and a multitude of other ways. And that's that people are working for what is an unjust wage. Beloved, God cares about the poor, and in particular, the working poor. He cares very much. James chapter 5, verse 4, he says this, Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God cares. If you're in a situation where you're employing people, and if you are paying them an unjust wage, God cares about that. He cares very deeply. You may be in the situation where you're on the receiving end of the unjust wage. It is your thorn and thistle. Here's another one for you. The uncooperative co-worker. The uncooperative co-worker. This is another effect of the fall. It's simply this. As sinners, we have to work alongside sinners. And that makes it very difficult. That can lead to jealousy. It can lead to competition. It can lead to backbiting. It can lead to drama. It can lead to selfishness and laziness and a whole host of other evils. Perhaps the most difficult thing about all this is is to some degree our success and our fulfillment in work is tied to other people. Tied to other people and they are sinners. And now, you know, you know the expression, right? It's hard to soar with the eagles when you work with the turkeys, right? Yeah. So sinners working among sinners can be a very challenging situation. The thorns and thistles of the fall. There's another one, the unhelpful product. The unhelpful product. This is a kind of an interesting one to think about. But this expression of the thorns and the thistles concerns itself with the reality that that for some of us, we are working hard to create, manufacture, and market things that are of dubious social value. 
dubious social value. I don't mean something that's illegal or immoral. Just things that really aren't worth much. They aren't worth much. Things that are, that are destined to head to the trash heap in very short order. And we give ourselves to working hard to essentially produce landfill. Rubbish. In her article, Why Work?, Dorothy Sayers, very insightful in this matter, she writes as follows. A society in which, the, in which consumption has to be artificially stimulated in order to keep production going is a society founded upon trash and waste. And such a society is a house built upon the sand. Stop right there. That is our society. That is our society. And we take it one step further. We use debt in order to stimulate demand, in order to stimulate production, to buy more junk to put into the landfills. We're in a precarious place. Sayers goes on to write, The greatest insult which a commercial age has offered to the worker has been to rob him of all interest in the end product of the work and to force him to dedicate his life to making badly things which were not worth making. Not only do we make rubbish, but we do a bad job making rubbish. And we use statistical analysis to say a certain percentage of this junk, it's okay. Just mass produce it, ship it, and we'll deal with it later. It cuts to the human soul. It cuts deep into the human soul to to give your life to producing something that's nothing but a pile of trash. Nothing but a pile of trash. The unhelpful product. Here's another one. The unkind customer. I don't really need to elaborate on this one, right? All you need to do is talk to somebody who's been involved in either retail or fast food. And you will understand what it means to have the unkind customer. The thorn and thistle. Here's another one for you. This one's the unappreciative owner or the unrelenting pressure. I couldn't decide which to title it, so I'm titling it both. The unrelenting owner or the un or excuse me, the unappreciative owner or the unrelenting pressure. This one goes something like this. At the beginning of the year, you get a communication from headquarters, and it says something like this. Thank you for last year's hard work. Sales and earnings are up 20% over the prior year. The new year target is 25% above that. And by the way, we're reducing headcount by 10%. Have a good year. Right? How often that's our char- that characterizes the work we find ourselves involved in. Produce more with less. Work harder, run faster. And half the time it's junk we're producing. Half the time it's junk. The unappreciative owner, the unrelenting pressure. Here's another one for you. The unyielding problem. 
the thorns and thistles of the unyielding problem. This is a scenario where you pour yourself into the task, but the solution is just beyond your fingertips. It's out there. You just can't quite get it. I think Thomas Edison illustrates this well. Thomas Edison, in his pursuit of the incandescent electric light bulb, was looking for a material to use as a filament that would not burn out quickly, but would have enough life expectancy in order to make the light bulb commercially viable. He went through 10,000 different substances until he happened upon the proper material to make the filament for the incandescent electric light bulb. Now, you talk about the solution being just beyond your fingertips, 10,000 different experiments, until he managed to find the solution. That, my friends, is thorns and thistles in a big way. Most of us would have dropped out a long time before that, right? All right, here's another one for you. The unproductive workplace. The unproductive workplace goes something like this. Most of us can envision accomplishing through work far more than we will ever attain. We sit there and and we think about what could be. Yet there are all of these limitations. There are the limitations of our own inabilities, our own sinfulness. There are the limitations of the workplace itself. And there can be great frustration. You know, you probably experienced this. You're involved in the work somewhere, and, and you're thinking to yourself, man, if we just did this or that, it would be so much easier. So much easier. I mean, perhaps you've actually developed a, a solution to, to one of your business's most vexing problems. You got it. And you, and you bring it to your boss, and you, you present to them the solution to the problem, and they look at it and they say, nah, it'll never work. Well, what do you mean it won't work? Well, the reason it won't work is because that's going to require the department next door to change their routine. And there's no way they're going to do that. So we continue to, to work and operate in an atmosphere of futility. Because why? Well, because the people next door don't want to change. They don't want to change. It seems so obvious to you, right? It's simple. But you, you speak to them about it, and it's like talking to a brick wall. It's like talking to a brick wall. The unproductive workplace. Everybody busy doing their things, nobody cooperating, nobody with a vision towards the whole. It just stymies your creativity, sucks the gas out of your engine. Oh, there are more that we could talk about, but I think that illustrates the problems that we find day to day, doesn't it? I think it's important here, beloved, to just remember something, though. God cursed the ground, not the task of working. The ground, not the task. Work remains a noble thing. Work remains a mechanism by which we display what it means to to be created in the image of God. It's hard, it's difficult, it's frustrating. But it is the work 
the, the ground that has been cursed, not the work itself. Work is good. It remains good. It's just hard. And it's filled with futility. And it's important we remember this because there are a couple of ditches that can come upon us in whatever occupation we are working that we need to avoid. They are, the, they are two ditches. They, are, they lie on either side of the road. One is, I call it the ditch of cynicism, and the other is the ditch of idealism. Cynicism and idealism. So we need to find a balance. We need to find the balance between these two ditches working in a broken world. Now, faced with the the overwhelming observational evidence that that work is deeply flawed, there are some that resort to cynicism. They become the cynic. The cynic. And the cynic approaches work like this. They say it's, it's just a way to make a living. Don't get your hopes up about making any kind of meaningful change. Just keep your head down, work hard, and make your money and go home. After all, nothing ever changes around here. Forget about job satisfaction. Go for the money. Just go for the money. That's the cynic. Conversely, there is the the idolist. The idolistic person, they they approach work with a passion that they're going to change things for the better. You've met some of these. They're, they're working for social justice. They're, they're working. They're going to invent and develop new products and technologies that are going to make life better for everybody. All you've got to do is read the mission statement of some of the, of the technology companies out there, like Google, and, and that's their mission statement. We're going we're to change the world and make it better. It's the idolist. They say, listen... I'm not going to get pulverized in the meat grinder of of Western society. That's not for me. I'm going to make a change here. I'm going to make an impact on the world. It's going to be a better place because of the work that we do. So we have the cynic and we have the idealist. What's interesting, though, is um, just observationally, the, the idealist is normally young and the cynic is normally old. The idealistic are the young, the cynics are the old. What happens? How does, that, how does that come about? Well, it comes about because over time the idealist gets ground up in the meat grinder of Western economics and tends towards cynicism. It's the way of the world. Does that mean there's no hope then? If you're young, be idealistic. When you get old like me, you'll be a cynic. That's just the way it is. Is, is, that, is that what it means to work? How terrible that would be. How terrible that would be. There actually is a, is a way to, to walk between the ditches. There is a way to walk between the ditches. There's, there is a way to, to live and work in a, in a world infested with thorns and thistles. There is hope. We find the hope in an interesting place. We find the hope in one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible. 
the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I mentioned the book of Ecclesiastes, and you're thinking, what, are you kidding me? That is the most dismal book you can read. Well, actually, it's not. It's actually not. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon explores what he calls the futility of life lived under the sun. Life lived under the sun. And, and what he means by that is, is basically the world as it is deformed by sin. Deformed by sin and, and ignorant and unaccepting of the sovereignty of God. Or maybe said another way, the world as it exists today, all around us. And you see, if, if the world around us, broken by sin and ignorant and unaccepting of the, of the sovereignty of God, is what shapes our philosophy and our attitudes towards work, then indeed it is vanity of vanities. It is a, it is a despairing kind of situation. But there's more to it than that. I want to take you to, a, to Ecclesiastes. I've been hearing the pages rustle, so that's a good thing. I'm going to take you there, take you to chapter 2. Chapter 2, I'm going to pick it up in verse 17. Solomon is, is commenting here upon work as it exists under the sun. That is, work without regard or thought to God. He says, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, he says, So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This, too, is vanity. Basically, what he's saying is, listen, I work hard, and I have to leave it to an idiot. The guy behind me is an idiot. And he's going to mess up everything that I've worked hard for. What a waste. What a waste. Therefore, verse 20, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. I mean, I I dig the hole, and some guy's going to come behind me. He's just going to fill the dirt back in. What a waste. Verse 21, when there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. I can't sleep at night thinking about work. And Solomon says, this is nuts. This is nuts. Not only do I have to, have to work with people who are messed up and are messing up my efforts, but at night I lay awake thinking about the fact that they have messed up my efforts. The turkeys keep me awake at night. And he says, this is vanity. This is crazy. This is crazy. And you know what? 
If that's life, it is crazy. It is crazy. I mean, because of the fall, we, we even when we're accomplishing good things, it, when we measure it all in human terms, it, it's just vanity. It doesn't endure. It doesn't endure. It can provide some satisfaction, but it doesn't endure. By the way, this is, uh, if you tend toward being a workaholic, you ought to spend some time thinking about these verses. You pour your life into something, for what? For what? This is where Solomon now rescues us. This is where he rescues us. See, Solomon understands that that work can still be fulfilling. It can still be fulfilling, and here's the secret, when you don't try to get out of it more than it can give. You're going to hang on to that. Work can be fulfilling when you don't try to get out of it more than it can give you. Because we're working in a broken world. It can't give you the ultimate satisfaction that it was designed to give you because the world is broken, and so are you. You will only get the ultimate satisfaction out of work when you, again, are able to live in a world in which sin is not cursed in. We're talking about Messiah's kingdom. Messiah's kingdom. But here's the thing Solomon says. It's really interesting. He says, God grants the capacity to his children to find some enjoyment, some satisfaction in this, falling, in this fallen world if we will just acknowledge his sovereignty over it. We'll just acknowledge his sovereignty over it. Take a look at verse 24 and following. I'll show you what he means. He says, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. It is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? What he's trying to say to us here is that within a certain context, work can be satisfying. And we're to recognize that when that happens, it is a gift of God and you're to enjoy that time. So practically speaking, what does it look like? It looks like this. If you go to work tomorrow morning and you have a really good day, things are just clicking. Whether you're working outside the home or inside the home, things are, you know, at the end of the day, you look back and you go, that was a good day. Rejoice. Rejoice in it. Thank God for it. It is His gift for you. Celebrate it. Go home. Have a nice dinner with your wife. Say, honey, it was a great day today. Tomorrow could be terrible. It could be terrible. And likely will be. But enjoy the good gift while you have it. Enjoy the good gift while you have it. If you're able to make incremental process or progress, you're able to change the world in just one little way, rejoice in that. It's God's good gift to you. See, what what this does is this this attitude towards work brings stability. It brings stability to the workplace. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This theme, by the way, just flows through the book. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He writes there, he says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. And check it out. It is the gift of God. When you have a good day at work, it is the gift of a sovereign God. Rejoice in it. Be satisfied by it. Celebrate it. And when you have a bad day, understand that that too comes under the sovereign control of God. Think of it this way. We're in a broken world under the judgment of God. It's an amazing thing that you have a good day at all, ever. What expectation do we logically have forever to enjoy work? So when you get a good day, maybe it's just a good morning. Maybe it's one meeting that works pretty well. Maybe it's, maybe it's an hour with the kids. Monday morning that seems to go pretty well. That's a gift of God. Rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. He's given you something, and He's given you the ability to enjoy it. He goes on, chapter 5, verse 18, saying, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself and all one's labors in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. It's his reward. Chapter 8, verse 15. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout his days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. Chapter 9, verse 9. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which He has given you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Listen, God has given us the capacity to enjoy our work. To enjoy our work. And in a broken world, that is a gift from God. And it is a gift the unbeliever doesn't have. Doesn't have. So when you head off to work tomorrow morning, I want you to remember this. If you get any satisfaction out of your job tomorrow at all, thank God for it. Thank thank God for it. Get up tomorrow morning, head off to work. Work hard. Why? Because you were created to do that. You were created to do it. In the grace of God, you may actually accomplish something tomorrow. That'd be kind of nice now, wouldn't it? But in the end... Recognize this. As Paul says in Romans 8, verses 21 and 22, that creation is groaning. It is feeling the effects of Adam's fall. It will never work the way it's supposed to work. It'll never work like it's supposed to. Best case, it'll always be a mixture of fruit and thistles. But if you get any fruit at all, be satisfied with it. Rejoice in it. Thank God. And go out to lunch and celebrate. But don't despair. Don't despair because Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And when he returns, 
hearts. He will undo Adam's sin. He is the second Adam. And we will at that point begin to really enjoy the fullness of that which God has created us to do. Be encouraged, beloved. It could always be worse. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and thank you for the wisdom of Solomon as he tackles some of the really difficult questions of life. The Bible is clear that you have created us to work. It's part of what it means to be made in your image. We desire it. It's a deep longing in all of our hearts. And yet, Father, we do recognize that this world is really messed up and that most of the time the the deep longings of our heart does not get satisfied and is not fulfilled. Life is very frustrating. It can even bring us to the point of despair. Throw up our hands and say, what's the point? No, Lord, that's when your word intersects us and, and tells us the point resides with you. It is, it is your sovereignty. You have created this world and sovereignly rule over it, including the effects of the fall. But you are a kind and gracious and merciful God. We don't get everything that we deserve. We reside under your, under your wrath as unbelievers, and, and even as believers, we still have to live in a world that is very broken. But in your mercy and your grace, you provide glimpses of what it could be. Father, help us to take great joy in those portions of life when we get a clear glimpse of glory. Father, we long for the return of Jesus Christ. That He would come, that He would put an end to sin, that He would establish His kingdom, and that we who have been recreated in His image and are being conformed to that image will experience in fullness what now we only have a a down payment on. Father, let us take that attitude into the workplace tomorrow. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, beloved. Work hard.